We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to A Taste of Romamu, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Romamu, please visit Romumu.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. This is a Dvar Torah, a sermon about two, about two people, or even two beings entering in relationship with another. I don't know about all of you, but I don't find being two particularly easy. In other words, I don't find relationships easy. Most of all, living with another person for about 20 years. Some background so you know where I'm coming from. Some of you know this already, but I grew up in the Syrian Jewish community in Brooklyn. And I, the script for me was that I get married at 18 and live around the corner for my parents. I didn't do that. I got married at the age of almost 36. A bit late, or really very late by the standards of the Syrian Jewish community. My parents were hanging on to the last minute. And to add to it, I'm an only child. So all my parents' dreams were pinned right here. And then what did I do? I married an only child. Two only, he's sitting over there. Two only children from complicated families marrying each other, oi and ah. Challenging. Not easy for two people who identify as one, or one could say the one and only, to live together to become two. Now here's a story from the early days of our marriage, and my husband gave me permission to tell you this. When Larry, my husband, would do his laundry when we first lived together, he would only do his laundry. (laughs) And I would relentlessly criticize him for this. And one day he went to do his laundry. And five minutes later, he returned with his laundry. And he said, I forgot something. And I said, what? He said, two. Do you have any laundry you need me to do? So of course, marriage, partnership, being a child, being a parent, being a brother, being a sister, a cousin, being a colleague, having a boss, having someone you supervise, it all can be tricky. It all can be complicated. And my question for tonight is, what does the Torah teach us about this? What what can we learn about being two? Who is it for you? Who's the tricky relationship? I can't imagine that anyone here floats through life not having a hard time with any relationship at all. And if that's true, I invite you to stand up. (laughs) 
Okay, so then I know that you're with me. So let's think about, let's do a little scan of the Torah until um, the point where we're at in the midst of Exodus. So you think about Genesis, and you think about relationships, and what comes to mind? Um, fratricide, lying, deception, competition, selling one's brother into slavery. Two seems to call forth tricky, uh, tr trickery and violence. And even God has a hard time with being two. If you think about it, God almost destroyed the entire world because God was disappointed with God's creatures. As it says, God was disappointed, heartbroken to his very, to God's very heart. God had a hard time with God's creatures because God expected they were created in God's image, but for some reason they didn't act like that. Here's a quote that I came across recently that helped me understand, that helps me understand why relationships are so hard, as if I needed this quote, but <laughs> it, it kind of gets to the bottom of things. This is from Mark Nepo, a contemporary poet, and the interview was in the Huffington Post. A certain kind of pain comes from insisting that people be what they're not, or holding on to the hope of what a relationship should be. It reminds me of a story a friend of mine told me about a decade ago. She went to see Pretty Woman with Julie Roberts and Richard Gere. And in the middle of the movie, she got up to go to the ladies' room, and she's thinking to herself, my God, my husband really isn't like Richard Gere at all. <laughs> and then, when she's in the ladies' room, she looks in the mirror and she goes, oh my God, I'm no Julia Roberts. So we wish the other were somebody that maybe we're not really. And when I got married, I had this fantasy of marrying the perfect egalitarian husband attuned to my every need and want, and somehow it didn't turn out that way. If we turn to Exodus now to see, we're still hanging on here to see what we can learn from the Torah, things get a little bit better. Think about the Israelites who were in slavery for a long time, right? They didn't want to hear anything about freedom. When Moshe, Moses came to talk to them about God's message, they didn't want to know from Moshe, they didn't want to know from God, and it says about them, they couldn't listen to Moses because they had a constricted spirit. They were out of breath. They were oppressed by bondage. They just couldn't hear. They weren't available for a relationship. And then, finally, they leave Egypt, and they're standing by the Reed Sea, and they, again, pretty much reject this whole enterprise. They reject God. They're in front of the Reed Sea. The Egyptians are coming after them. They've already witnessed the plagues, right? They, they know, or they could know, having witnessed what their enemy or what these slaveholders in Egypt went through, they could know that God was on their side. Instead, they say to Moses, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us to die in the wilderness? 
Didn't we tell you when we were in Egypt, leave us alone and we want to serve Egypt. Better that we die in Egypt than we die in the wilderness. So they're not yet there. And even on the other side of the sea, the first thing they do is complain. They complain about water. They complain about food. They complain about water. That's the trope that carries them through the wilderness. But there's one moment, I think, that gives me hope, and it clearly gives God's hope. It sends God on the right track in this relationship. So if you think about Sinai for a moment, the Israelites were completely overwhelmed after hearing God's voice. And right afterwards, they say to Moses, don't let God talk to us, Moses. You talk to us or else we'll die. But this is a little bit, that statement is a little little bit different than the usual complaint. They're not complaining. They're naming their limitation. They're naming their capacity. And they're not rejecting God. They're inviting a relationship, but God has to keep God's distance and Moses could come close, right? They're naming the kind of relationship that they feel safe enough to have. And God remarkably learned from this. God God listens, which brings us to our Parsha. God, first of all, never speaks directly to the Israelites again. God contracts, God pulls back. God does what the Kabbalists say, what the Kabbalists call is Simpson, right? Contracts to make room for the other. And any parent or teacher in this room knows that to be in relationship with a child, right, to be in relationship with anyone vulnerable, you need to pull back some of your intensity. I know that even my teenage children sometimes say to me, you're being too loud, you're being too intense, back off. Back off. So God backs off. And what does God do? God has the Israelites build a mishkan, a kind of movable spiritual feast in the desert, right? a, a beautiful creation where God dwells. And in fact, the word mishkan has within it the root that means to dwell and also shares a root with the word shechina, which, um, which uh, is, is defined as God's feminine indwelling presence on this earth, that which dwells amongst us. There's a beautiful location above the ark, the most holy place in the Mishkan that speaks to this question of two. There are two kruvim, two cherubim, face to face, Right? Face-to-face, these golden cherubim, which are kind of like angels. No one knows exactly what they are. And that's the point from the space in between them, right? in between this face-to-face encounter, that's where God speaks to Moses and tells Moses what Moses should instruct the Israelites. So what a beautiful expression of God's listening. God not only pull, pulls back but stays present. God stays present in the Mishkan that travels with them. right? Because the space between us is really dangerous. Sometimes we come too close, and sometimes we're so far it feels like abandonment. So how do you stay connected and yet not overwhelm the other person? 
and to take sort of a note from the page of the Israelites, how do you not go, get overwhelmed by, by the relationship so you can stay in it and name your own capacities? This works for me. That doesn't work for me. Right? This is how I need to connect to you. To me, the two kruvim, the two cherubim, are God's promise and prayer. God's a little bit lonely. God wanted a different kind of marriage with the Israelites. Just like I had a fantasy of what my marriage would be like, God had a fantasy about what God's marriage with the Israelites would be like, right? Something a little bit more intimate, perhaps. And I think those kruvim standing face to face are aspirational. They're God's prayer. They're also God's promise to the Israelites, to all of us, that we will not be abandoned. And I think then the secret of two is in listening to who the, the other really is. And only when we can really pay attention to their capacity and our own can we build a relationship. And once we really understand how the other person operates and how we operate in relationship with them, that's when we can connect and have a relationship that goes forward in time and enjoy the multiplying gifts of being two.